As part of your definition of yourself as a founder, it's important to know what you stand for. And sometimes it may take a little bit of time for the world to come around to your idea, but you've got to stick to it if you believe in it. BlueJay Earn is essentially the platform. We are a marketplace that allows for investors to discover opportunities and for borrowers to be able to access capital. We're not a bank, right? We're not taking deposits. We're not custodying money. We're not taking those funds and doing something else with it. Therefore, there's not those reserve ratio requirements and all of that. We're not a bank or a platform. We make it easier for people to be able to connect with opportunities that fit their risk reward profile. You have just heard from Sherry Jang, co-founder of Blue Jay Finance. Previously, Sherry led growth and incentives marketing for Google Pay in India, where the product grew from 13 million to more than 120 million monthly active users. She started up Blue Jay in 2021 to push the envelope even more when it comes to financial inclusion, outside of existing banking rails. So let us dive right in. Thank you for joining tonight and we're very honored to have Sherry Jung here, the co-founder and CEO of Blue Jay Finance. We met in Tokyo during East Global when that happened here a few weeks ago and I was just blown away by the energy that Sherry transpired and I really wanted to have her on a call like this to share what her mission is with Blue Jay Finance. So, Please all welcome Sherry, who is based in Singapore. Hi, Norbert. Thank you so much for having me here today. And it was great to meet and chat with you in Tokyo just about a month ago, I think, during Tokyo. Nice to be able to chat with you again, talk about the future of real-world assets, on-chain credit, and all of that. So thanks for having me here. It's fantastic. And the first question, maybe not fully on topic, but what was your impression of Tokyo, of all the events that happened during East Global? You're traveling a lot. It's hard to pin you down. And it's always interesting to hear what people think about Tokyo and the pace of innovation and the vibe that you get. The last trip to Tokyo was actually my third time to Tokyo. The first thing I noticed, because I used to work in digital payments, and that's something that I noticed a lot, is that initially, I think in 2017, when I was first in Tokyo, cash was a necessity you had to use it for everything if you didn't have cash with you and you need to take the train you have to go find it otherwise you're not able to get transportation and so fast forward a couple of years later it's just really transformed you can use digital payments almost everywhere which is pretty cool from that angle that was like one of the first things i noticed is just in the course of a couple of years how much that has really changed culturally i always have loved the vibe of tokyo I have to say there is no other city that I've been to on the planet that's quite like Tokyo in that there's almost like these mini cities all within one mega city. And each of these mini cities just have such distinctive, interesting personalities that you don't ever really run out of interesting places to find and interesting things to do. I never feel like I have enough time when I'm in Tokyo. So every time it's my last day and I have to leave, I always feel this sense of not having done everything. and this feeling of wanting to go back to see even more. I really love the energy of, of Tokyo. And now onto matters related to Web3, FinTech or crypto. I actually learned quite a bit on my trip to Tokyo. I had the chance to talk to a lot of different people, folks that have worked on consumer FinTech and talked about how retail trading, retail investing really picked up a lot as a trend during the pandemic, since a lot of us were bored at home. So learning about the stock market and basics of investing is something that picked up a lot more in the last two years than perhaps years prior, where 
most, as someone described, most of the behavior has been more around saving than it has been around investing in Japan. The other thing that was interesting, not entirely surprising, but a lot of the innovation that happens in Japan is in cooperation with some of the larger established players, like the large financial institutions, like SBI, Numura, and then on the corporate side of things, players like Rakuten. I found that there's a lot of these different innovation arms within companies in Japan that kind of work to collaborate with different startups and innovators to see what they can do within the Japanese market. I really loved my trip out to Tokyo. I am sure I'll be back within the next year. We'll see when that will be exactly date-wise, but just love the energy of the city. Saw how much it really transformed over the last couple of years, which has been interesting. And seeing some interesting trends as well as around innovation as well as fintech. Thank you. It's, it's great if you have some distance between the trips because you notice all these changes that when people live here all the time, you don't quite get, right? It's like with the kids, it's, oh, you've grown so much if I haven't seen you for two years. The perspective is much appreciated. Let yes. us switch to Blue Jay Finance. Give us the 101, please. What is Blue Jay Finance? What are you trying to accomplish? Blue Jay Finance in one single liner is a stable coin based platform that allows people to invest in fixed income assets that are backed by real world financing opportunities like private credit. I have to use the word real world sometimes um, the terminology when you compare more crypto native or DeFi native yields to ones that are real world asset generated yields, which come from allocation of capital, for example, to real businesses. So we're effectively a platform. We have a network of different fintechs that we work with that are fintech lenders or alternative lenders that aggregate debt across the region. So we work with plenty of the companies that are based here in Singapore that are addressing the credit opportunity for SMEs within Southeast Asia. So they have a portfolio of different companies in Indonesia, Thailand, etc., and in Singapore as well. And then what we do is make that capital much more accessible for anyone to be able to actually invest into this asset class, which has typically been reserved primarily for large institutions or H&Is, where oftentimes, even as an accredited investor, if you don't have, let's say, a minimum ticket size of 100K or 200K, it's actually quite difficult to be able to get access to this asset class. I know you may ask what's the rationale or reasoning of investing into private credit versus other asset classes like ETFs within public equities or even treasury bonds, which are giving you pretty decent risk-free returns in this current economic climate. And really it's because it gives a really interesting diversification use case when it comes to your portfolio construction. So one thing interesting about private credit or private debt is that it tends to be less correlated with the general public equities market less correlated with the crypto market. So if you're looking to improve your risk adjusted rate of return uh, or sharp ratio, that's something that can be used as a tool. The other part is really just around the attractiveness of the rates at this current moment as well. And in general, the last couple of years, where if you actually look at the trend of private credit as an asset class, it's been, I think, around 10% annualized returns over the last decade, which in certain years, it could even beat what you get in the public markets. And this has been something that a lot of large institutions have started allocating more. And in Asia specifically, around 68% of institutions and funds have indicated that they want to invest more into this asset class. So essentially, we've identified this opportunity to make this asset class more accessible. In Asia specifically, there's tons of opportunity because of the underserved credit needs for businesses, mid to small cap businesses here. 
And we want to use the blockchain as a way to more efficiently and more openly be able to provide this kind of asset class to more people. How did you get the idea of Blue Jay Finance? Is this the idea where you wake up one morning and you say, this is what we need? Or what is the path ultimately that led you to do this? Perhaps I can give a little bit of history of my own professional background, which will shed a little bit of light to the idea of Blue Jay. I have been working within fintech specifically for Asia and emerging markets over the last couple of years. I'm originally from the US, but moved over to Singapore to actually ride the fintech, the web to fintech wave in the 2010s, right? Because I saw the huge opportunity for it to really leapfrog, allow people to go from cash to digital payments straight, skipping over credit card generation in, in Asia specifically, and just was really excited about the pace of innovation here. I used to work at Google actually, and the product that was on was Google Pay, specifically for India. During my time, I saw the product essentially grow to 100 million users in about three years, which was a very exciting journey to be on. But I would say that towards the end of my time on Google Pay, I was getting antsy to actually see if there's a way to actually push the envelope even more when it comes to financial inclusion. Because at the end of the day, when you're working on a fintech platform like Google Pay, you still have to work with existing banking rails, right? You have to work with something called UPI in India, which is basically the bank-to-bank -bank transfer network that actually made instant payments so much faster and easier. But there's still a lot of challenges, right? Where there's a bank that goes down, customers think Google Pay has some kind of issue, but in reality, there's a lot of things that are out of control when you're a fintech player. Be you're, you're essentially an app interface, but then on the infrastructure side, there's less control that you have over it. From there, after I had left in 2021, I started exploring what different ideas or how you can reimagine what the financial system or financial services can look if it were actually built from scratch. And that's really where I got super excited about the potential for decentralized finance or DeFi to really solve for this. And I guess for those who are less familiar with the term DeFi or decentralized finance, it's essentially a trustless system where you don't have the typical intermediaries or custodians that we have in our traditional financial system, be it a bank, etc. But you have these blockchains that have a decentralized ledger-based system that allows for validations to be spread across multiple different actors in a way that you don't have one central party controlling it. And financial services are being executed via these things called smart contracts, which you can think of as programmable money services in a way. So instead of having people actually do a transaction or manage that process, it's actually code that's being executed. I saw this as a really exciting opportunity to do something in. Now, as for how we eventually got to the idea of Blue Jay from here, I would say is quite a interesting journey as well. We've gone through a couple of different changes and pivots as well as a business. So initially we had started out on the very kind of base layer. We were like, okay, maybe we can provide a medium exchange that applications that are built in DeFi can use. And so we started out building these Asia-based stable coins called Blue SGD for, for the Singapore dollar. And then we found as we were you know, looking to integrate and develop partnerships with different products, that one of the use cases that we can build ourselves that is quite a good opportunity here is actually on-chain credit or lending in a sense that it gives the stablecoin a use case around providing yield that is safe, that is sustainable and also attractive. That was really the genesis of us building out our first product using our stablecoins called Blue Jay Earn, which was launched last quarter. Now, was actually very excited about the credit opportunity because if I think back to my time the last few months before I had left Google, one of the 
exciting opportunity was actually figuring out how to expand merchant credit for some of the SMEs that were onboarding onto the Google Pay Merchant app by using transaction data as a way to underwrite credit in a way that wasn't possible when you didn't have access to the digital economy that way. And so in a way it came full circle and I saw that this is another opportunity just to expand the universe of businesses' ability to access capital, as well as expanding the universe of opportunities for investors to gain access to asset classes. So I know that was a bit of a long story around how I got to this point, but I've always known that what excites me is really working on problems that solve for more and more financial inclusion, especially for a region like Asia or Southeast Asia, where you still have 60 to 70% of people and businesses underbanked, right? So this is a continuation of that journey in a way from my time working in fintech. I just want to take one deeper dive into the actual mechanics, Sherry, as to when there is a deal, a transaction, a pool that's forming, you obviously have the investor, the lender, and you have the borrower. So how does this then work in the BlueJay protocol? Yeah, of course. It is a multi-party ecosystem here. BlueJay Earn is essentially the platform. We are a marketplace that allows for investors to discover opportunities and for borrowers to be able to access capital. And so what typically happens, we'll start with the borrower side of things. I'll give an example. Recently, the last quarters when we launched our inaugural pools or opportunities for investment, and we partner with a fintech based here in Singapore, on bringing one of their bonds on chain. This bond actually allows for folks to subscribe and also get exposure to their entire book of SMEs, SMEs debt versus one singular opportunity, which of course has less diversification and a little bit more risk. We work with them on coming up with the exact sizing. They have an interest rate that they give to us. And then we share that information onto our platform. Now, the part where crypto is involved is actually on the investor side, where after we launch a pool, the way that you can invest into it is using a stable coin. There's a few different stable coins that are usable on our platform. Of course, we have our blue SGD or blue J stable coins for SGD related opportunities. We do also take other stable coins like USDC for US denominated opportunities, since even though we're in Asia, there are still funds that actually have their um, in, in USD currency. So we, of course, want to be able to facilitate that as well and accommodate for that. And then investors during the entire funding period albeit a week, a month, et cetera, has the opportunity to deposit it into the loan. The way that this works commercially is very similar to how lending works in the traditional sense. You have a fixed term, there's a tenure. So most of the time, if it's shorter term financing, which is the kind of range that we look at, you're looking at between six to 12 months on average. And most of these are going to be things like invoice financing, PO financing, et cetera. For things that have a longer tenure, like project financing, we don't have that currently on the platform because they tend to be a little bit longer. And so we wanted to have somewhat shorter opportunities so that people can go and test it out before committing to five years for an opportunity. Um, so those are the types of loans that we have. And then beyond the tenure, you'll see the interest rate payback period that is could be on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis, et cetera. And then of course, how exactly is the principal actually paid back? So sometimes it's amortized across 
a period of time or it's a balloon payment that happens at the very end for the principal. Now, what is interesting about the tech of it is all of this is actually being automated via our smart contracts. There's not actually a manual process where this is happening. We code that all up, up front in the beginning. And so all of the disbursements, all of the funding happens automatically from the time that we set the parole until it's fully funded and then successfully repaid at the end of the period. The part that we'll note for now is we do live in a world where not everybody is operating in crypto, especially the more non-crypto centric businesses that we're working with. If you're talking to a, a ESG company in the Philippines or a cement manufacturing company in Thailand, um, you, they're not going to have their assets in crypto 99.99% of the time, at least for now. So we do work on a process of moving funds from the crypto form into fiat so that the exposure that the SMEs ultimately get is actually still in the fiat currency and not in the crypto one. The crypto part is really just a fundraising piece to get capital essentially from different parts of the world and in a way that's more efficient than just having it raised within fiat. So that's the general mechanics of how the platform works from a commercial standpoint as well as from a flow of funds and the tech point of view. Happy to, of course, dive into any of the details as well, but I just wanted to give a high-level overview, firstly. That was great. Thank you. The first reaction that I had when I heard about BlueJane, we talked about this when we met, is you do a stablecoin, and Japan has, maybe it's the first, I don't know if it's the only country that already has stablecoin regulations, so you can't just go out and say, I'm doing a stablecoin. What does it mean for you in the Singapore environment? Is this... <laughs> permissible you can just go and say i create blue sgd and use it as a method of payment one thing to note about the most recent opinions of mas on stable coins which is from the consultation papers that were published last year is there's not any type of stable coin that's not permissible to be created but there are classifications of different types of stable coins and what's permissible within each of them so what most fiat-based stablecoins, what category they fall under within Singapore is something called a single currency stablecoin. Essentially, you have fiat of one single currency like Singapore dollars used to mint a stablecoin of the peg to that same currency, right? So Singapore dollar fiat minting Singapore dollar stablecoin. And this is what Xverse or StraightX follows as a model. So there are strict regulations and I would say frameworks for what you can do to be classified as a single currency stablecoin. There's certain reserve requirements. There's certain other requirements that are in there, but for all other stablecoins that are not following this fiat backed model, which is what BlueJay actually falls under for its blue SGD, it's actually classified as a digital payment token, which also encompasses other digital assets. I think it's actually in Japan, they call it just crypto assets, which is a similar categorization, but in Singapore, we call it digital payment token. And stable coins that are crypto collateralized like BlueJay, DAI, all fall under this category. The part that is still, I think, yet to be put in place is details around what you can or cannot do as services for each of these different types of stable coins. Yes, wanted to start out with the classification to say, hey, like the single currency stable coins are the most straightforward ones. This is what the classification is, but they have not yet said what you can or cannot do with those certain types of stable coins. I hope that answers your question. I was actually quite impressed by the sophistication of the stable coin framework for Japan. I did have a chance to talk to folks from JPYC who actually walked me through some of the past and the most recent discussions around stablecoin regulation, which I found really quite interesting. 
It will be an interesting market over the next few months when people start launching these. And we've seen some announcements already. Hence the questions for other markets. It's just hard to keep track of how this evolves in all different jurisdictions. Now, the stable coin, though, the blue SGD is used only for limited time. Let's assume that they use the native platform token on the pool. I need to convert my fiat currency into blue SGD, and I can do that through Straits X, as you said. And then the lender also needs to turn it into fiat again. So it's really during the pool formation time that you need the stable coin, but otherwise it really doesn't exist. One clarification is that there are still folks that onboard into the product actually through crypto itself. So it's not every single time that somebody wants to, let's say, use Earn has to go through the on-ramping process to get Blue SGD and then participate in the pools. There are cases where it does originate from crypto itself. If someone's holding ETH or BTC or other stable coins, they can actually do a swap on-chain. But to answer your question around, is the fundraising part the main part where the stable coins are playing a role today? The answer is yes. On the lender and on the borrower side of things, Ultimately, we still have to get the capital into fiat because they cannot pay their vendors or their contractors or anybody who's involved in utilizing that capital. They can't pay for that using crypto yet. We're still a ways away from that world. But I do imagine a future where that does change. I think there's a couple of barriers, but if we're able to solve for better accounting principles related to a mixed crypto and fiat structure for businesses, if we are able to solve for account abstraction a little bit better, meaning if you're a business, you don't have to constantly worry about losing your private keys or dealing with all the intricacies of the MetaMask account versus like a typical account that you're used to. Once we're able to solve for some of that and get more transactions within crypto, I can see a world where you don't actually have to exit into fiat at some point. That's a possibility. The metaphor that I like to draw as an example is there was a time when Credit cards, debit cards were not adopted by all merchants. You had to still off-ramp your digital money into cash and then go to a merchant and pay in cash. And so businesses have cash balance and digital balance, et cetera. But at some point that kind of goes away a little bit because you're further along the adoption curve. So I do imagine that happening um, in the future, probably not the next year. We're still really early, but at some point more and more of this data around transactions from merchants can be on-chain. So more merchants then will not necessarily have the need to get those funds in the form of fiat. And then actually, just to maybe extend even more why this entire ecosystem is really exciting is that now you actually can rely on the data that happens on the blockchain, potentially even for credit scoring and underwriting. And one of the biggest concerns that you hear anyone talk about when it comes to lending opportunity is trusting a counterparty to do the risk assessment to actually verify collateral or things like that. But as you move more of that on-chain, there's a real opportunity to do it in a much more efficient and transparent way as well. Especially as you're looking at the ASEAN markets as one of your focus areas and you want to lend to SMEs, there's really not much in terms of credit scoring that you can do, although there's many fintech startups trying to find a way to do that. But clearly, if you have the loan history and the repayment history on chain, as you would have when they've done borrowing through your platform, then that leads to a very powerful credit score because it's not environmental factors or location. It's really based on the financial transactions that happened in the past. 
the other different thing from a regulatory perspective for me was that you're essentially getting around the accredited investor status. If I look at other private investment vehicles in Singapore, I would need to go through an accredited investor verification and you don't have that. What is the rationale for that? What's the mechanism you're using to make this available to anybody without any limit on the investment amount? I'll go ahead and say this, though, just to start out that where we are at today is a step in the journey towards actually having a KYC process in the near future, and not necessarily on a platform basis, but on a pool by pool basis, depending on the requirements that are put in place by the borrowers themselves. In Singapore, I think it is fairly consistent. But if we do have borrowers in different countries, they may have different requirements in there as well. So that's why we don't want to do it on a platform basis, but do it on a pool by pool basis, right? To answer your question around how it's happening today, I can get into the details of the structure right now. We have an SPV that is set off chain that is KYC'd as a corporate accredited investor that faces the fintech funding societies, etc., as an example, or other kind of fintech aggregators. And they wouldn't be facing the lenders directly, but they'll be facing us. What we then do on chain is we, we raise the funds. And then they stay within the smart contract. And then off-chain, we deploy that capital from our corporate accredited investor entity, or SPV, to the fintech. There are times where the money actually does cross from crypto to fiat and fiat back. But it's not every single time because we do actually have a float between both accounts. But when the interest payments are supposed to happen, let's say when the fintech pays us back on the month two interest on the 30th, then there's going to be a similar transaction that gets reflected back in crypto from the lending pool to the actual end investor or the end user. And so that's actually how it works today. What we are going to look at doing in the future is having certain pools have requirements put in place for certain accreditation status, et cetera, to participate. That makes sense. Thank you. This all sounds solid and very understandable as long as things go well and eventually will hit an environment again where borrowers will default on their debt. How does this worst case scenario work out? on your platform, if I'm a lender, how can I get recourse against the borrower? What we try to do on our side to prevent a situation like this from happening in the first place. Now, of course, there's always black swans or things that can happen that can go wrong. But currently, for most of the opportunities that we're looking at, we're looking at entirely secured loans. It's not unsecured or uncollateralized opportunities. There's still some securitization either by share pledges or personal guarantees in some cases, or others will be corporate guarantees by a holding company. So there's structures put in place to mitigate the impact of a few or single SME defaulting on that side. But let's just say that there is some kind of systemic risk or systemic event that happens and all these defaults happen. And then the fintech itself that is underwriting the aggregator is actually in a bad state. Then from the lender's perspective, they can actually engage in collectively working together to have some kind of recourse process directly with the borrower. We can introduce or facilitate that process, but we are not managing the entire process end to end ourselves. That's how the recourse process would work in that worst case scenario.
which in turn means when you say that your platform essentially is just a facilitator that at the beginning of this whole process at the due diligence stage it's also up to the investor to make use of the data room and get comfortable with the credit risks that they're taking on there. That's correct. We do make it clear that we don't want these situations to happen, but there's always a risk, right? Hi, I'm Shang. My question is related to what Sherry was saying. She was talking about the systemic risk which could happen. So we have seen it happen. It's the regional banks. I'm wondering uh, if the FDIC was not around, it could be really much worse. Could I have your input on regulation? Regulations are put in place as a form of protection. That's why it's important when it comes to communicating these investment opportunities that you're very clear that you do need to do your own research and that these kind of tail risks can't happen, right? And so when you're looking at each different opportunity, the worst case, of course, is you lose a big chunk of your principal, but you should also look at who the counterparty is, what has been the historic performance of the loans over the last couple of years. You can compare the MPL rates against perhaps the public information or the average rates as well. And then make a decision for yourself whether or not this investment is fitting of your risk reward profile. One thing I'll be very clear about is that we are not providing financial advice or telling users what they should or should not do. And that these financial products themselves do require in-depth study for somebody to individually take on the responsibility of whether or not it makes sense for them. And so we're there to present the options, but not there to say you should be investing in this or investing in that. We just also need to be clear about that these are not deposits because the FIDIC yes. comparison was drawn. This is investment into a debt structure where the borrower might use this for working capital financing, for invoice financing, these types of things. It has a higher risk profile. There's no deposit insurance and consequently there should be a higher return. Obviously that's up to the judgment of the investor when looking at the terms, whether you believe that the offered interest rate offers sufficient compensations for the risks that you take on. But it's fundamentally yeah. different investment vehicle from a deposit. Just to be clear, we're not a bank, right? We're not taking deposits. We're not custing money. We're not taking those funds and doing something else with it. Therefore, there's not those reserve ratio requirements and all of that. We're not a bank or a platform. We make it easier for people to be able to connect with opportunities that fit their risk reward profile. There are some interesting innovations that I will mention that could mitigate some of these risks a little bit more. In crypto, I would say that in general, the insurance industry hasn't been very easy to build traction around because it's very difficult to underwrite DeFi risk because it's so asymmetric. When bad stuff happens, it's really terrible and not enough of the premiums can really cover for it. It's very difficult to price. It's difficult to estimate the risk. The impacts are almost always existential. When it comes to credit, it might actually be easier to find some ways to create insurance products on top so that you can actually, let's say, pay like some kind of premium and it protects against a certain amount of capital loss. These products don't really, at least for us, we haven't been using any of them thus far, but that is one area that can be expanded upon to mitigate some of the risks of investing into this asset class. If you want to lower the variance there. It's still very new, but it's possibly one way to actually get a little bit of protection. 
I wanted one more question from a positioning perspective. And that's in this industry, you have the manufacturing of the funds, the creation of the funds, and you have got the distribution aspects. What you said earlier, we said we were tokenizing a bond that existed already. It seemed you might be focusing a bit more on the distribution side and take something that's typically a large investment with a large minimum requirement and break it down, fractionalize it, make it accessible to common people and build that community and make it accessible to this community as your primary objective. Is this a right interpretation of what you said? Yeah, so absolutely right. The way that we think about it is there's three layers to the ecosystem when it comes to on-chain credit. There's originations, which is creating the product, getting the borrower on board, doing the underwriting, etc. There's the middleware, which is the tech enablement layer. This is KYC or credit scoring platforms or all that in-between kind of infrastructure. Then there is distribution, which is how do you actually get this to an end customer? The biggest focus area for us is really on distribution. That's for a couple of reasons. Number one is that there's been in the whole real world asset space, there's been a ton of focus on originations and there's a lot of opportunities being originated. But what has been difficult for some players is really finding a market fit for it. So you spend a lot of time building the product. Product market fit comes with market as well. We're like, okay, there's a lot of these different players we can collaborate with on originations. And then what we want to build is our community of private debt or private credit investors who maybe in different stages of their journey with private credit, like some in our community have been private credit professionals for more than a decade. And you've got folks who are savvy investors, maybe they're software engineers, the big tech company have some investable capital, but they're not as familiar with private credit because again, it's not really a product that's really marketed or sold or something that they're aware of in general. And so we want to create this community so that we really understand the needs of the user. How exactly are you thinking about your own portfolio? What does achieving financial freedom mean for you? Over what time period? What kind of returns does that mean when you think about financial freedom? It's really more down to understanding the user, what their problems are, what are they trying to solve with their money? And then how does the private credit story fit in there? When we spend a lot of time there, then we essentially do what we do best and then work with those folks that do what they do best with originations and grow the overall market even more. A little bit of a plug before moving on to the next question is that we actually do have a telegram group for those here that might be interested in it, where we do have discussions about private credit. There's a lot of questions that get asked about our current opportunities. And we really want this to be just an open place for people to discuss, learn, et cetera. So if anyone is interested, I can for sure post it and happy to introduce you if you're interested in learning more about private credit. From your experience, you come from big tax, you come from a really good company and reputation and skills and highly technical. So Google is, you get the propeller head when you start on your first day. So I think <laughs> that's a sign of what this company stands for. And then you go into DeFi. So there must be some lessons learned that you can share with people, prospective founders in this space who are looking at this and say, this sounds really interesting. I would like to do something as well. What one or two of the things that you wish you had known before? 
I was about to say that you should prepare crisis management plans in advance because black swan events happen in crypto all the time. Now, of course, we've been able to manage a peg of a stable coin, not ours, but Terra got through SVB and DPEG of USDC and then FTX, right? We finally have a crisis management plan put together, right? When these happen, what are the step-by-step -step processes? Founders are, I think, naturally optimistic people, which I think is a good quality because you have to believe in a better future to really hustle and work for it. But it's also important to know that a lot of these situations, especially in a space as new and volatile as DeFi, there's going to be outcomes that you just have to prepare for, right? As a contingency, it's not to say you wish those would happen, but you just have to be prepared for them. I think the other lesson, it's not so much like something that I didn't think about doing that I wish I knew now, but I think when you're coming up with an area that you really want to dedicate yourself to as a founder, right? There's actually a Japanese term for it. It's what you really enjoy, what you are really good at, and then what the world values, right? Is that correct? Yep. Ikigai? Yeah, Ikigai. Okay. I don't know if I deliberately or consciously thought about Ikigai when I decided to go on this journey, but now... It's something that I remind myself of all the time because I feel like it's easy to get swept up in the hype of things. I think right now it's AI and everyone is putting AI in their pitch decks for raising capital or now their company has AI, whatnot, right? And then maybe last year it was like, we're play to whatever, or I, we're a metaverse, whatever. And maybe that taps onto the, like, what the world wants to talk about and everything, but you just have to know what you stand for principle wise and what you care about, what you think you're good at, and then find the right opportunity and just sticking. It's very easy to get distracted in this space and feel like you should be doing this or you would your idea would be more popular if you were doing something else. But let me tell you, it does not matter. Have an idea and just build conviction for it yourself that it is the future over the next couple of years. I think one thing that I think about for our journey is that even last year, I think early 2022, um, when we were thinking about our stable coin and use cases for the stable coin, like we were already like starting to talk about RWA and on-chain credit and looking at this. This is when everybody was still very much in the, I would say, GameFi metaverse wave, right? And it wasn't as popular to talk about the TradFi stuff on DeFi, right? It just wasn't as popular to talk about. But I think now you go full circle after all of the crashes and macroeconomic woes of 2022. And then now there's this realization that, oh, like this actually is a part of the future for DeFi, right? As part of your definition of yourself as a founder, it's important to know what you stand for. And sometimes it may take a little bit of time for the world to come around to your idea, but you've got to stick to it if you believe in it. So yeah, that's what I would say. So number one, crisis management. Number two, Ikigai. Wonderful. Great conversation, Sherry. And I wish you all the best for the business. We certainly will be watching it. I think you nailed the conviction part. It comes through with the passion and the strengths you're talking about, Blue Jay. And it was just a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much, Sherry. Thank you, Norbert, for having me. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.